0: Good morning. Um, before I start the sermon, I should just explain, we usually record sermons live on Sunday mornings, but there was a bit of a technical hitch this week. So I've come into the office of a few days later just to record it. Um, I mentioned this just in case you were there and you start listening to this and think it's not quite the same as it was on Sunday, because um, I don't script everything. And the second reason to mention it is that If there's an occasional joke, there'll be a deafening silence here in the office, and uh, at least unless the file cabinets uh, have got a way better sense of humour than I think they have. But let's start. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was asked to preach on this passage of the wise and foolish builders, I remember that the last time that I spoke on this was back in our home church in Cardiff. And some friends had started a service once a month for uh, all the kids in the church, age age five to 18. I know 18 year olds are not kids. Uh, This happened once a month in the church hall. And the other three weeks, they either had their own separate activities or we had all age church. But this service was called Kids Special, and it was really high energy. Uh, The older kids, some of them formed the band. Uh, The games were more like the tug of war and penalty shootout type. And there was usually a quiz where one team got the really hard questions and were guaranteed to lose. And of course, that team had to be the oldest kids, beaten yet again by the four to seven year olds. And I usually did the talk and wrote some sketches for the kids to act out. Planning meetings were as much fun as the services, so the theme of the wise uh, and foolish builders um, was being discussed in the planning meeting, and I'm hearing, we'll get bags of sand, and the kids can build sandcastles. And I said, sand in the church hall? Won't it damage the floor? No, we'll cover it up with big sheets of plastic to protect it from the water. Water? In the church hall? Yes, you can't make sandcastles without water. So I said I'd just do the talk, but it was all great fun. And I'm sure the adults enjoyed it as much as the kids. And it only took three hours to tidy up afterwards. So when I realised which passage we were studying today and that Alistair and Roger and all the trustees were away, I thought, come on, why not Robson Square? If they can skate outside, why can't we build sandcastles in here? But I changed my mind building is certainly something you see a lot of in Vancouver. New buildings are going up all the time and as I walk past I wonder, probably like you, how high is this one going to be? Or has that one got a cinema, an Olympic-sized pool and an ice rink in the basement now? The population of Vancouver is growing fast and the constant question seems to be what do we want Vancouver to be like? How should we build for the future? There's an interesting exhibition at the moment at the Museum of Vancouver called Your Future Home, with designs from various architects answering the question, how should we build for the future? I like the idea of a water recreation area in Coal Harbour, but perhaps the most striking exhibit is this one, the 2,500 foot vertical city scenario from Henry K's Partners Architects. The model presents what Vancouver would look like if the downtown section of Granville strip was flipped 90 degrees into the air and reimagined as a vertical structure well it's 10 times higher than anything around now and clearly covers a lot less land area than Granville street does now but how should we build for the future the other issue in vancouver of course is the weather and on my way into church this morning uh, i saw two cones with wet floor on them. Now these cones were outside and I thought if we're going to start putting those outside we're going to need an awful lot of them. But seriously, the other issue in Vancouver of course is the likelihood of an earthquake in the region and a possible tsunami. How do we build to withstand an earth tremor or a tsunami? Building community is another hot topic, isn't it? and churches are waking up to the opportunities created by knocking down the church building, building a high rise with accommodation for seniors, affordable housing, space for daycare, as well as worship space. So how do we build wisely for an unknown future? How do we build to withstand whatever is thrown against us? If the earth should shake and the record wave hit? How do we build wisely for community? A place for belonging and being known? Well these are exactly the questions that this new sermon series is going to be addressing. Brick and mortar. What is the foundation that our individual Christian lives are built upon? What is the foundation that St Peter's church life is built upon? What is the wider Christian community, the church around the world and through the ages, built upon? What holds us together as a person? a married couple, a family, a church, when the big one hits. Or the repeated small blows mean that we've reached tipping point and we're hanging on to God by our fingertips. In the last series of sermons, Making Sense of Jesus, we were thinking about how God makes sense to us, how we apprehend God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how Jesus makes sense to us and through us, as we make him known, as we share in God's mission to his world. So we've been thinking about how God became incarnate, how God took flesh, and Jesus was born into our world to show us and teach us what God is all about. As one of the early Christians wrote in 1 John 1 verses 1 and 2, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The disciples heard Jesus, calling them to leave everything and follow him. They heard Jesus declaring, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me. They heard Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, as he died on the cross. They saw Jesus stilling the storm healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, taking the cup and saying, this is my blood. They touched Jesus, embracing when they met, Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, the disciples lifting Jesus' lifeless body down from the cross. And this Jesus that they had heard and seen and touched, they proclaimed... The women at the empty tomb, we have seen the Lord. Peter on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. Paul, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. So God made himself known through Jesus. We know God and want others to come to know him too. So in this new series, Brick and Mortar, we're looking at the glue that holds our faith together. We're in this for the long haul. Faith in Christ being part of his church is like a gym membership. We want to still be using it in March, in July when the sun is shining, in November when it's dark and wet. Don't switch off now. Do not switch off now. I don't want the only thing you remember about this sermon to be that Christian faith is like a gym membership. You want to get your money's worth from it. It's a terrible analogy. All analogies are inadequate, but some are terrible, and this is one of them. But let's be realistic. Without looking at statistics and averages, we all surely know that there is a dropout rate from church at whatever age. Some of you no doubt decided that you had safely and wisely and maturely dropped out from your parents' religion or just put it on the back burner till you were really old, like 30 or 40. No kid ever sets out to be the prodigal son, the lost daughter but it happens. What do you want to be when you grow up? The prodigal son. It just happens. But the father was looking for you The Good Shepherd was searching for his lost sheep. The Spirit of God was making you restless and calling you back. So this series is looking at what is going to keep you and me in it for the long haul. Because love for God, assurance of faith, being all out for the Lord can fall away at any stage. Older folks are not immune. The cares of life, the love of riches, The kids having soccer games on Sunday mornings, looking after elderly parents, can stealthily squeeze the Christian commitment out of us. Brick and mortar will look at four important foundations of our faith, four important things that cement us. Jesus, Scripture, the Holy Spirit and the Church. So this week, Jesus. Why not start with him? Always start with him. Because after all, he deserves the title of the cornerstone, the sure foundation. So we turn to this passage from Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 to 29. That's page 629 in your Bibles if you want to follow along. And this is where Jesus conjures up a picture of a wise and foolish builder. It's a parable, even though our Bibles may not have given it the heading, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Basically, a parable is where Jesus takes an illustration from everyday life in Israel, something everyone knew about, like a lost sheep or losing some money or houses being built, and uses it to teach his listeners about something they don't yet know about, the kingdom of God, eternal truth. So it's not just about building or lost sheep, it's teaching them something about God. So a parable is being called an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. If you look at Matthew, Mark and Luke, 40% of these gospels are made up of Jesus' parables, Jesus telling stories. Another 20% is Jesus giving other forms of teaching. In other words, most of Jesus' teaching is in the form of stories taken from life, which his listeners have, have to think about and figure out. This is not just some geeky point I'm making because I enjoy teaching New Testament and I'm interested in teaching techniques. It's actually really interesting. Jesus' teaching was not mainly do this, don't do that. But here's something for you to think about and apply for yourself. Quite simply, Jesus says that everyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet the house did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears Jesus' words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's not complicated, is it? Jesus is saying there is a dramatic difference between the one who puts his words into practice and those who do not. The passage is really saying, literally, as with the wise man, so with the one who puts my words into practice. As with the foolish man, so with the one who does not put my words into practice. Well, I've always loved castles, and there are a lot of them in Britain. And this one, uh, Cockermouth Castle, came to my attention last December when I was back in Britain. It's up in the uh, northwest corner of Britain. And it was built about, oh, only 1,000 years ago by the Normans, but using stones previously employed by the Romans nearly a 1,000 years earlier. But it got in the news because, as you can see in this slide, we had terrible floods in Britain in December. And this is the flood water racing through the streets of Cockermouth. And some people's houses were flooded, you know, three times during December. The next slide shows the castle again from the river side and you can see how the river bank is supporting it. And the final slide shows the same view of the castle but you can see how precarious it is now because of the damage the flood water did in eroding the bank. This castle, that has been a stronghold for a thousand years, is in serious danger of slipping into the river. What's the context of this particular parable? Well, it comes at the end of a block of teaching by Jesus that has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, because in chapter 5 it says... When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountainside and sat down and began to teach the disciples. It begins with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and so on. And this story, this parable of the wise and foolish builders, comes at the end. Is that significant? Why end with this? Jesus has been teaching his disciples and the crowds who had gathered to hear him, and it's time to stop. You are Jesus. This is the sermon of your life, the one that Monty Python will include in their film. How do you end? With a summary of everything you've just said? With the main point? There's a real significance that Jesus chose to end his sermon with this story, this parable. Again, a parable. His audience, including us, have to think about it and apply it individually. Preaching has been described as not just voicing the teaching of the Bible, but being heard. The listeners, the congregation, have to hear the message. Roger reminded us of this last week in his sermon, Are You Hearing Me? But hearing is not enough, is it? Jesus is saying it's not enough to hear. You must put it into practice. It's the same in real life isn't it? We may hear the instructions but if we don't put them into practice it's just the same as not hearing the instructions. I hear the instructions to put my life jacket on if I don't do it the life jacket and the instructions are no good to me when I end up in the sea. I read the instructions to never leave a candle burning unattended But if I don't follow the instructions, they're no good to me when I fall asleep and a fire starts. So I was tempted to call this sermon, Hearing is Not Enough, rather than Building Wisely. And Roger knows that hearing is not enough. That's why he and Alistair planned for this sermon to follow last week's. Jesus was asking, Do you know who I am? Are you hearing me? And are you doing anything about it? because there's a sharp contrast between just hearing and putting into practice what you have heard. If you don't put it into practice, you are foolish. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority. Listen to me, do what I say. Not just in my considered opinion, this is the best interpretation of the Jewish law or the Ten Commandments, but do this, or it will be with you as with the foolish man. And Jesus warns that the wind and the waves will come. Are they a punishment for not listening, for hearing but not doing? No, they're not. The winds and the waves are just a fact of life. Everyone experiences bad things and sad things. The wind and the waves will come. And some of you may well have a whole lot more personal experience of this than I have. I'm sure some of you do. But the wind and the waves made me think about a friend of recent years who's a pastor in our home church in Cardiff. She was married in her 20s. But months before the marriage, her fiancé was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And before they'd been married six months, he died. So she was a widow at something like 26. The winds and the waves will come. And I also thought of a family in our church when we lived in Atlanta with our four young children who were one, three, five, and seven when we went there. David, who's known to some of you, was the youngest. And he learned to walk and talk in Atlanta. I vividly remember the time I said to him, David, put your shoes on, we're going out. And he said to me, yes, Mayim, and I thought, Yes, ma'am, that is the sort of respect I want. I've been bringing my kids up in the wrong country. Buddy's dropped the habit now. Martha is two years older than David. And when she was about five, one of the other mothers in our church drove her kids to their elementary school so that the oldest one could play in a soccer match. And as she was getting the baby out of her car seat and into the buggy, her five-year-old son opened the car door and got out right into the path of a car and he was killed instantly. For months and months, Martha talked about this and asked questions about what had happened to her Sunday school classmate and about death and heaven. And we tried to say and pray with her something honest, something real, something Christian And I'm sure she still remembers this, but I'm even more sure that the bereaved family remember and wrestle with it. The wind and the waves will come. So will our individual faith hold? Greg Carey put it this way. This passage does not promise that following Jesus will keep one safe and healthy. Jesus' teachings are a secure foundation for faithful endurance. They sustain disciples in the long haul. Luke also has this parable in his Gospel, again at the end of a long account of Jesus' teaching. And Luke has some different vocabulary involving some differences to the details of the parable. And it's interesting to compare them because it adds another layer to what Jesus is saying. So listen to Luke and spot the differences. It doesn't seem strange to me that there are differences between the two versions of the parable, because it seems to me more than likely that Jesus told this story more than once. Indeed, many times as he travelled around and taught for three years. The point was not to say something new each time he spoke, but to get his essential message across. And since this parable was the punchline, what are you going to do with what you've just heard? No doubt he finished with this story often. So Luke chapter 6 verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house, who dug deep, When we compare Luke and Matthew, Matthew is not so interested in the building techniques used, but in the impregnability, the survival of the house on the rock, compared with the great crash of the house on the sand. Luke gives us more details about the building process. For him, the difference is whether the builder has dug down so that the house has proper foundations. The wise man dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Luke's version, it seems to me, also has an even more dramatic storm. Matthew has the rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. That sounds pretty fierce. I'm reminded of the line from one of Ted Hughes's poems, this house has been far out at sea all night. The house is receiving a battering from the storm. But Luke takes it a step further. What he's saying is a flood came, a torrent struck the house. Matthew has the river rising and flooding the house. What Luke is conjuring up is more like a cloudburst and a flash flood racing down the usually dry ravines in Israel. The plural of rivers is used, a really powerful force of water and whatever is washed along with it hits the house including sand as the ground turns to sand and is swept along, and when the flash flood subsides, that sand is deposited. Not a great place to build without deep foundations. Rain, rivers, winds fell upon the house of the wise man in Matthew, burst upon the house in Luke, but it did not fall. They could not shake it. We've been thinking thus far about individual faith, how each one of us individually responds to Christ. Fair enough, we believe and obey individually. No one can do that for you. But this passage, this parable of the wise and foolish builders, also applies to the church, the community of Christians. And we'll think briefly about building wisely as a church on the rock. Matthew's Gospel points us in that direction as he highlights the contrast between the emerging church and the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. There's not much about the church in the Gospels. The growth of the church is described in Acts. But there's going to be another sermon in this series later on the church, so I'm not going to dwell on this. But as well as having this reference to building on a rock in the parable of the wise and foolish builders, Matthew also has another reference to building on the rock in Matthew 16:18. When after Simon Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, Jesus says, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." A rock on which a community of believers around the world and down the ages is built. The church is built by Christ on rock. Matthew's Gospel seems to have been written after AD 70 when the temple, the Jewish temple, in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans who were occupying Israel at the time. And Matthew's readers or listeners would have known about this. Jerusalem is built on a hill and about the highest part of of the uh, hill is where the temple was built. It's called the Temple Mount and the temple was constructed from huge stones and appeared as a large, impressive, solid pinnacle to the town, to the city. But it was destroyed, torn stone from stone, so that only what is known as the Wailing Wall remains. And today there's a mosque on the Temple Mount. So Matthew's readers knew that the temple, which just like Cockermouth Castle had seemed so strong, had been destroyed. But Jesus was promising to build his church the rock. Individually we need to build wisely but we also need to build well as a church. As a church we need to hear and put into practice Jesus teaching what God is calling us to. Three very brief points. As I said earlier there's going to be a sermon on the church uh, as another one of the things that glues us together. Firstly as with the folks I mentioned earlier when someone dies and we are being tossed about by the winds and the waves. The faith of our church community supports us and helps to carry us through. We need to build wisely as a church for these times. Secondly, Jesus makes quite clear in Matthew's gospel that followers of Christ will be persecuted. Right from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five and verse 11, he says, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me and in verse 10 for yours is the kingdom of heaven and again in chapter 10 verse 28 do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul how do we build wisely to be able to withstand persecution and to support the persecuted church It may seem something that is a long way from Vancouver and from Robson Square, but is it? Um, Back in our our home church in Cardiff, I was vicar's warden for six years, um, which uh, was a strange mixture of being an elder and helping to steer the church and being the doorkeeper and unlocking and locking the building, sitting at the back during services and overseeing the practicalities like opening the windows or closing the windows and welcoming newcomers. If I opened the windows, somebody complained. If I closed the windows, somebody complained. But one morning, a mother and her three sons arrived uh, just after the service had started. And I teach English as a foreign language and I like to try to guess where people are from. Uh, Jordan, I thought, uh, Iran. When it was time for Sunday school, I went over to see if the boys wanted to go to the children's activities. Arabic, Arabic, she said. So after the service, I went back with a couple of friends who'd lived in the Middle East and had a smattering of Arabic. And between my English for foreigners and a little Arabic and the fact that the oldest boy spoke some English, we began to hear her story. She and the boys had just fled from Iraq to Britain. Uh, since she was born in Britain, had a UK passport, she could enter the country. Her husband had gone to Jordan and was applying to join her. The final thing that drove them out was that the oldest boy's school, a Christian school, had been bombed and he had seen things no one should have to see. Where did she go when she arrived in Wales? To church, to draw strength from worshipping God with other believers, to be upheld by the the Christian family. Not anyone she'd ever met before, not even her denomination the Universal Church of God. When the wind and the waves come, we support each other. And over the next months, our church and Anglican Church and the Catholic Church round the corner, supported the family and helped them settle in Wales. Just like churches in this area are helping refugees settle here. How do we build wisely as a church in a time of persecution, in a time when so many people are refugees? Thirdly, Jesus also makes clear that there will be false prophets leading Christians astray and false disciples who, when faced with persecution, accommodate the views of their persecutors and stop living by Jesus' high standards, because that would mark them out as easy targets for persecution. At this point, you may be thinking, gosh, people over 40 are so morbid. This is a real downer. Well, no, I just want to be clear that the winds and the waves will come and part of the context Christ outlines in which his listeners have to decide to not only hear, but obey, is a context of potential persecution. Matthew Meyer Bolton said, The point of preaching is the work of making possible a safe, strong, flourishing human community well prepared to face the inevitable wind and rains. A flourishing Christian community, Christ came to give us abundant life. And hearing and putting into practice Jesus' teaching doesn't just help us in the tough times, it helps us to make good decisions and good things happen as well as tough ones. Um, my friend in Cardiff got married, uh, remarried a few years ago at 60 and um, I was sort of mother and father of the bride. She asked me to come and stay with her the night before. Uh, I drove her to the hairdressers in the morning and then I took her luggage to the reception venue. And by the time I got back to the hairdressers, um, she'd had a call from the Bishop of South India, uh, wishing her well, like you do, um, when you've been in uh, theological education and, and, and pastoral ministry in, in various places in the world. So it was a lovely occasion when people were just so thrilled um, that she, that they were getting married. And, Christ, and Christian marriages are built on that rock, aren't they? The rock of Jesus. So how do we build wisely for the future in Vancouver to withstand the winds and the waves to build community? Well, this week, Lent starts uh, the run-up to Easter. We sometimes think that Lent is a time to give something up. Well, that's fine if you want to give something up. But the main point of Lent is to make space, to hear and apply the teachings of Jesus, to make more space for God. So let's use this Lent to hear and apply the teachings of Jesus to build individually on the rock and to consider how we as a church can build on the rock. Perhaps you could pray for someone in the church, get to know them, pray for our brothers and sisters in the suffering church. And as we've already heard, we're having the uh, annual vestry meeting, AVM, the annual general meeting uh, shortly to explore the the vision for the future. What ideas and experience have you got? How have other churches built wisely or or are building wisely in Vancouver or elsewhere? Think and pray about the AVM and come along. And just in case you think I've got this all sorted, Uh, One last brief story. Kids Special. Remember Kids Special? Building sandcastles in the church hall. I was always keen that we invite along other adults from the church to take part sometimes. Um, so that the kids could get to know them and see how Christian faith was being worked out in their lives and careers. Um, I grew up uh, with a a faith, but not in a Christian family. And I always found it really interesting to meet um, other adults who had a Christian faith. So when I was thinking about the winds and the waves, a particular family in our church came to mind, since they'd settled in Cardiff after being in Rwanda, in Africa, for some 20 years. Uh, They were friends of ours and their three kids were in school uh, with ours and I knew they'd been in Rwanda during the Civil War, the genocide, and hung on there as long as possible before going to work in a refugee camp. So Rob agreed to be interviewed before this audience of 5 to 18 year olds on the theme of when you go through the deep waters, I will be with you, says the Lord. So not if you go through the deep waters, but when you go through the deep waters, I will be with you, says the Lord. So I'm standing there holding the microphone and asking the questions. And Rob starts telling us about being in the operating theatre at the hospital, operating on those injured in the fighting, whilst the hospital was surrounded by an armed, hostile crowd. And as I remember he said, I thought to myself, well, Lord, if this is it... If this is my time to die, I'm ready. But I know I have not done all that I could to serve you. And I'm standing there holding the microphone and swallowing hard and thinking, on my running order, this was just supposed to be the testimony between the sandcastles and the quiz. But wow, expressed in such a humble manner, Rob's words were an extraordinary challenge to my comfortable Christian faith and an amazing testimony from a life of obedience built on the rock. And what a testimony to the God who indeed says, when you go through the deep waters, I will be with you.